Flowers in silhouette, beautifully arranged and captured in gray and purple silk. An operations book of fine dark leather. An umbrella with space metal in its bones, and eyes of sight inscribed in its skin, forged in the fire of souls. They are the best things you own. A note of color and luxury in the gray expanse of your office, and the offices beyond that, and the offices beyond those. These gifts are a product of your unique division, as are your own hands and form. You mimic the likeness of the worlds you audit, but never their joys. You find a certain escape in your fine objects, and they bring you comfort as you begin your 17th century audits. That was when it began, most likely, your taste for petty niceties. It informs you even now, although the gray expanse is far behind you, and as you sculpt the fire of souls in vaulting ceilings and dinner halls and chandeliers, your luxury is a flame burning brightly in a world that watches dark, whispers hello from the Hallowoods. floating in a crystal formation. It is one of many that line the pools and hot tubs of the Grand Crossroads Hotel Spa. Three step in through the foggy glass doors, but only one wears clothes. The theme of tonight's episode is decadences. Is there anything else I can get you? Said the man in the door, if man he was. He wore a suit of satin flowers and had a flourish of ginger hair that shone in the low light. Uh, this is fantastic, Nolan said. The proprietor of the Grand Crossroads Hotel did not seem as vulgar as the master of the resting place, or as likely to cheat at cards, but there was some semblance that reminded him of Barb all the same. Something in the body language, as if always waiting for something to happen. Very well then, you two enjoy yourselves, Polly said, and ducked out of the frosted glass door, left them to the spa. It was a large room filled with various pools, some with bubbling jets of water, some cloudy and green with therapeutic salts, some cold as ice. Sparkling geodes decorated the corners, and mosaics of glittering stones depicted islands and birds of paradise. Besides his boyfriend, there was only one other occupant, a shiny pair of eyes peeking from a very small jacuzzi, where a froglin sat swathed by bubbles. It's like the hot springs up on the mountain, Nolan said, and at Raku's nod slipped into a warm mineral bath. His new partner followed, green fins and barbed skin stretched as he found the water. Raku always looked happiest when he was in his own element. I do miss the view from that place, Raku said and blinked with his secondary eyelids. You know what? 
Me too, from time to time, Nolan said, and drifted around in the water. The floor of the pool had a rough sand texture, although his feet had become so calloused over the years that he could barely feel it at all. It was nice being up there with you, and I think I even needed that for the time. But I'm glad that you decided to come back to the forest with me too. get to enjoy places like this. Even before the mountain, when we camped in the mud cave where I dwelt, it was a luxury as long as you were there, said the green-finned man. Nolan paddled over to where Riku floated and hung off Riku's shoulder. It was odd for Nolan to swim. Looking down, there was a gap in the water where his body was, his shape illustrated by absence. What are you looking at? Riku barked. The froglin across the spa sunk deeper into the bubbles. Is that Grug or a different one? Nolan whispered. I cannot tell, Riku replied. Nor do I care. I don't mean this the way it sounds, Nolan said. But are they like you? Where they looked just averagely human once? Or are they something else? They wander the swamps with spears and nets, and are too dim-witted to spot me lurking beneath the water, Riku said. And they are very bad at cards. This is what I know. It's just an odd world I find myself living in, and I'm trying to make sense of it, Nolan said. We are odd people said Riku, and sank a little deeper into the water until it lapped at his mossy chin. We belong in it. Thought you were all afraid of the world, said Nolan. Whatever happens to never trust strangers and always stay inside. Riku was silent for a long moment. The gentle lamplight glinted on his ridged skin. These last few months have been nice. Riku said, meeting Alice and Winona, coming back to this hotel and finding it so different. I am realizing that I did not have to be so afraid that there are people like us and they are not all hungry animals as I was. Again with the self-talk, Nolan clucked and dipped his hand in the water, watched the emptiness displace the bubbles. But I'm glad, and I think we can make this work. The house is shaping up pretty well. It may be a challenge to finish our renovations before winter, Riku said. I will put my focus on insulation. We must keep you warm. I could also bundle up a little more, Nolan said. I'll manage. And by the spring, I think we'll have patched up all the rotten boards and the walls, the roof. Pile rocks beneath so it stops sinking into the lake, Riku said. Given that you have the incredible strength and the breathing underwater, I'm going to put that one on you, Nolan laughed and sighed looked at the side of Riku's amphibious face. A green eye flicked to look at him. Riku, 
Nolan said. I'm really happy doing this with you. The spa, said Riku. Yes, I find it refreshing. Not just the spa, Nolan said. The renovations have gone faster, working together than alone, Riku observed. Not the renovations either, Nolan smiled. The being with you. I've been meaning to ask, when we have our place fixed up, what... I don't know how to ask this. What do you want to be to each other? What do you want to do with our future, I guess? What kind of life do you want with me? Riku closed all his eyelids and frowned and began to sink until fronds and fins fell into the bubbles and he was gone entirely. Nolan sighed and followed him, sunk until he could put his forehead against Riku's, sat beneath the water with him, bathed in lights and bubbles. It was unspoken, but true, he knew, that they would find out in time. If you live in the northern Hallowoods, there are many little luxuries that are no longer accessible to you. Due to import costs and ailing supply lines, they may never have been accessible there at all. Even the basic tenements of survival are dependent on the few farms and gardens and salvagers that still persist year after year. The factory communes and oil cities still grind out their products years after the means of their production were seized. And Botko's outreach programs promise favors for the rest of your community at great cost. There is only one place where luxury truly survives now. And it is in imagination, in the dreaming minds of the millions connected to the prime dream. And yet, there are moments when the age of scarcity might almost be forgotten. Roadside destinations in the unlikeliest of places where comfort might still be found. For comfort is what matters still when there is no one left to admire gold or jewelry, no audience to display wealth or status to, for wealth itself has lost its meaning. We go now to one who has found their meaning. is wrong, Diggory said. Mixmorel seemed concerned and the grinding path of the museum slowed almost to a halt. It's the wrong hotel, Mixmorel said, and stared out the little window in the foyer of the museum. Diggory found another through which to look, saw that a building outside was the size of the museum, bedecked in yellow and pink light bulbs, warm light in shaded windows, a glowing sign that read the Grand Crossroads Hotel, and beneath it a cinema sign that read Poker Night. What do you mean, the wrong hotel? Diggory said. 
It looks a pleasant place, although I have never seen such grandeur outside of a dreaming box. I don't know the grand crossroads, Mixmorel said and stuck their hands in their pockets. This used to be a place called the Resting Place, right here on the marsh. I wonder if Barb has remodeled. Barb being who exactly? said Percy, stretching his silver chassis as he paced around the coat room. Oh, Barb is quite a character and an old friend, but it's best if you meet him yourself, Mixmorel said and nodded. Yes, must have rebranded while I was away. Maybe he mentioned it to me, I don't know. I was rather under the table when I left here last. Good whiskey here, very good whiskey. The museum hissed and rumbled as it came to rest, and descended thirty feet as the great isopod that carried it folded its legs under its architectural carapace. And then Mix Morel was leading them down an extending gangway, and across a field of loose stones and marshy puddles towards the electric palace. Percy's clinking footsteps followed close behind. The museum pilot, Benson, who seemed to be an anatomical model of a skinless human body, waved from an upper balcony, Beetle Baby peeking from beneath one arm. Diggory flexed a few fingertips in a return wave and followed Mix Morel for the hotel doors, and the world was swallowed in a soft pink light, so much brighter than the stars overhead. The museum was not the only vehicle parked in the lot. Rusted trucks and battle wagons, motorcycles, and a strange bejeweled animal stared back. Diggory looked, but did not see the signature bike of the Count. There was a great revolving door of brass and polished glass set into the rosy stone, and a world of color bubbling on the other side. Now be warned! Mix Morel said, pausing at the doors to straighten out their coattails. Barb is a bit of a scoundrel. Do not get roped into one of his card games unless you are prepared for high stakes. I never do too well in them myself. Make sure anything of value stays in your pockets. Otherwise, have fun. Mix Morel turned and strode in through the door and disappeared in a twist of glass panels, left Diggory and Percy standing outside. Let's not stay here too long, okay? Percy said. The silver plates of his skin shone with pink and gold reflections. They're going to miss us at the scout post pretty soon. One more evening should be all right, Diggory said. In the morning, we return home. And do what? Percy said. You heard that thing in the pit. Diggory, I have seen a lot. Big Mikey, and vampires, and wolves. My own dad carried by an army of ghosts. But that thing, taking up all the underground, talking to you like that? I've never been so scared. I was prepared to do anything to protect you. Not scared for me, Percy said, and put a silver hand on Diggory's jacket breast. Scared for you. I'm worried about what you're tangled up in. 
and that somehow if you go on this journey, something bad will happen to you. And that conversation we just had, it only confirmed that, right? Percy, Diggory said, and put their stitched hands over his silver one and held it close. I understand. I have spent a great deal of time worrying about you when you were taken from me again and again and again, but I did not lose hope because I know you and you are strong. And I believed, I had faith, that you would be there for me to rescue. I know the journey ahead seems impossible and frightening, but I am asking you to trust that I will be all right, that I was made to handle this. I am only tangled up in my own strings like a broken puppet, and I feel that when this is done I will be untangled. I need to do this, Percy. Not for Cindy Lockhart, nor Rizwana Mirza. Not even for our friends and all the world, but for me. Percy looked up at them a moment, and Diggory wished they could parse the limited movements of Percy's silver face, understand without words what he was feeling, but they could not. Percy went up on his toes and pressed his faceplate to Diggory's chin in a way indicative of a kiss. I love you, Percy said, gears whirring inside. And I you, Diggory said. I hope I do not destroy your trust, Diggory thought. I hope I will keep the promises I have made. I have made them because I want them to be true. Now, shall we go see what this hotel holds? Let's do it, Percy said with a metal smile, and squeezed their hand in his, and they stepped through the revolving door. They emerged together on the other side, a great entry hall with pillars and a painted ceiling, notes of classical music in the air. Chandeliers and wall sconces, double doors into hotel halls and vaulting staircases, and in the middle of the grandeur, Mix Morel holding a handkerchief in one hand and their glasses in the other. The hotel desk itself caught Diggory's attention the most, however. It was marble and quite large, and a huge person, ten feet tall at least, stood behind the desk, wearing a battered suit of red metal armor, shoulder pads plastered with ruined stickers of pride flags and the Stone Maiden Band and scientific organizations. The suit had a pneumatic grasper cutter claw on one side, and a high-pressure glass observational dome in which a human skull with flames for eyes bubbled in black water. Memory came flooding into Diggory's head like water through a submarine wall. Party? Diggory said and held up in the middle of the hall, stared up at him. Hmm? said the lumbering suit. There was a little bellboy cap affixed to the top of his dome. Hi and welcome to the Grand Crossroads Hotel. My name is Mort. 
Will you be my friend? Hello. If you are hearing this in your dream, you are obliged to remember it and respond, or else you are very rude. After all, I am Lady Ethel Mallory. I gave you 30 years of my life. I sacrificed everything to be your national icon. So if anyone within the San Francisco ruined beach area has Blackwater Concentrate, please bring it to me. I tried to trust the rain for a while. At times it felt like it was quenching my thirst, but I came to realize that I needed more. Increasing the potency proved to be more effective than higher volumes, even if it did hasten certain changes. Even so, I can't go back. I need it. If I don't get it, I don't know what will happen to me. Maybe I'll shrivel up and fall out of my own skin. Maybe my split bones will fuse back together. Maybe I'll break apart like a twig, bone by bone. For now, I have a headache, and I am thirsty. But I expect the rest is coming. How I wish that I could see the future. If only to know for certain if I can expect a peaceful night sometime in the next half century. I would have to celebrate were that the case. We return now to Diggory Graves. I would like to be your friend, Diggory said, and stepped forward slowly, glanced between Mix Morel and the skull in the suit. I think in some way I might already be. I like that, said Mort, and lifted his massive grasping claw, turned a page in a letter book with its point. Do you have a reservation? Or are you just here for the cards night? You call yourself Mort, said Diggory, and stepped up to the desk, placed their fingertips on the edge. I call myself Diggory now. But if you are who I think you are, you may remember a part of me as Ruth Esther Barnes, as August Pauls, as Chancellor Ward, as Evelyn Fry, as Rizwana Mirza. Mort stared at them. The green lights in his skull flickered. That's the lady from my dreams, he said. The last one. Do you dream about her too? I do, from time to time, Diggory said and smiled. They turned to Percy, who was tapping them on the shoulder. Diggory? Percy whispered. I think some of these people were there the night we burned my dad's house down. The night he died. Look. Diggory looked up. They had gotten brief images in the fight of devils and wolves and red metal, but they had known themselves so much less then, only had attention for Percy and his father. But they recognized him, a spry little man in a flowery suit who stepped down the stairs with cat-like grace. 
Is Mort assisting you perfect strangers adequately? The devil asked. Please say five stars, Mort grumbled. It was interesting how he managed to talk, Diggory thought. The skull did not really move in kind, so much as you just heard the voice, much like democracy. Five stars, said Percy. Oh, lovely, said the man in the floral suit, reaching the bottom of the stairs. Polly, special manager, what brings you all in tonight? I'm afraid we haven't met, said Mix Morel, placing their dark glasses on again, and they went to shake Polly's hand with one sprouting fingers like mushroom stalks. Mix Morel, Museum of Broken Promises. I was quite close with Barb. I was a regular. I am terribly sad to hear of his demise. Mort, you're supposed to refer me these conversations, Polly whispered. But I'm also supposed to be helpful and answer questions, Mort said. Which is it? Polly and Mix Morel continued to talk, but Diggory leaned in a little on the counter, got Mort's attention. You mentioned dreams, Diggory said to the behemoth. What kind of dreams do you have? I see her sometimes standing on a bone beach, Mort said. I didn't always know her name, but we talk a little each time, so now I know more. I don't know why she talks to me. I do not know, Diggory said, if it is only a dream. I have visions of her, for she is a part of me now. But I also know of others who resemble you. Bone and eyes of green flame. They too sleep in water and dream in visions and prophecy. What's a prophecy? said Mort. Something that tells you what is going to happen, said Diggory. Are you a prophecy? said Mort. I do not think so, said Diggory. I wonder if these dreams of yours are significant in their timing. You and I both died in the same mission. I'm dead, said Mort. But also not really dead, because I can talk and move and take reservations. I am the same said Diggory. I'm going to leave you two to it, Percy whispered. Take a little look around. Do not wander too far, Diggory said. I do not wish to lose you. Am I a prophecy? said Mort. You may be a prophet of sorts, Diggory said. You and I died together, Mort. We were trying to save everyone. We went north on a boat to destroy a terrible heart. I am about to try again. I am glad that I got to meet you before I leave. Why can't I go? Mort said. I, Diggory began, it is a deadly mission. Great, said Mort. That's why I'm dead. I suppose if you wanted to, 
There would certainly be room for you, Diggory conceded. When does it go? Mort said. I need to request time off at least two weeks in advance. Excuse me, said Polly, and Diggory was suddenly face to face with the manager, whose eyes burned like embers, and upon whose head danced two horns of curling flame, and his words cut like a hot brand. Stop trying to kidnap my receptionist and get out of my hotel. When you are so expansive that you encompass each corner of the universe, and exist only as a field of energy and willpower and dream, and live for almost eternity, it can be hard to treat yourself. What pleasure is there that is not impossibly brief in the grand scheme, that can sway the feelings of a supernova, a nebula, a black hole? And yet, I have no need for treat or excess. I am self-sufficient, self-sustaining, or at least as much as it matters. I will degrade, I think, over time, or eternity longer than it will be for this universe. I am timeless compared only to you. But I am content to progress at that slow pace, and the chances are that I will be destroyed by some other being before then. This becomes more likely, perhaps, as this broadcast continues. I do not feed myself on souls and sacred flame. My idea of a decadence is to spend my time on something trivial, superfluous, without guilt. And so we continue. We go now to one who rarely gets days off. Can you believe it, Mr. Writing Desk? said Mr. Raven, dropping grey duffel bags on the bed. Oh no, said Mr. Writing Desk, ducking to enter the door, and put his bags in a chair by the door after the girl shuffled in. It's a nice room. I like the bedspread. Not the room, said Mr. Raven, and wheeled around. Well, yes, the room is splendid, and of course it's a nice change from our office cots. Or your cell box, CPE-13. Penny, said CPE-13. My name is Penny. Your classification is CPE-13. We don't use names here, said Mr. Raven, and thought of his own name, which was so far away from him now that it barely seemed to have ever belonged to anyone. But I am talking about the fact that this hotel, everyone in it, the very walls, are giving off copious amounts of indie radiation. Multiple sources of said mores confirmed. We've hit the jackpot, if you will. Mr. Raven unfolded the mobile paraspectrogram from his sleeve and pressed it to the wall and gasped. Impossible, he whispered. Because that wallpaper's been gone since 17th century France, said Mr. Writing Desk. And I am not entirely sure it exists, said Mr. Raven. 
The entire building may be an elaborate illusion, a phantom image. The signature is ranking off the chart. There was a decisive creak, and both of them looked over to find Penny, red hair escaping from beneath her gray hood, opening the window, only to find it barred. Penny, said Mr. Raven. Damn it. CPE 13. How many times must you try to escape before you accept that it will never happen? As much as it may seem like we're the worst people in the universe, said Mr. Writing Desk, it is worth noting that there is an entire forest out there giving off crazy radiation, potentially filled with all things deadly. You want to live and try and see your sister someday, you'll want to stay alive. Don't encourage her, said Mr. Raven, and cuffed Mr. Writing Desk lightly on the shoulder. It. Don't encourage it. This is a dangerous CPE you are speaking to. One which we must keep an eye on at all times, said Mr. Writing Desk. Yes, said Mr. Raven. Preferably. The minute we're gone, the dynamics of its luck may change. That's the problem with subjective abilities. They're hard to predict. But for instance, if you had any notion of scouting out CPEs from the hotel, we may be able to capture... She's going to have to come with. Hmm, said Mr. Raven, and frowned. Well, as much as I hate the prospect of adding other factors to its presence, it might actually aid us in that pursuit. Please, now, said CPE-13, from where it had sat down on the floor by the window, arms over its knees. Please don't use me to trap someone else. It's not fair. It's not only fair, it is necessary. Mr. Raven sighed and pulled a heavy-duty laptop from one of the bags, folded out lenses and center dishes, and the screen came alive with green alerts. Mr. Writing Desk, you're not going to believe it. The original signal we've been tracking. It's here. Aspects of it anyways. This might be a faster trip than we expected. Great. Mr. Writing Desk said, and went to kneel beside CPE-13. Now listen, Penny, he said. Mr. Writing Desk, Mr. Raven began, but Mr. Writing Desk lifted a finger in silence, and Mr. Raven decided to respect it and sighed. Penny, we've been on the road for days. Tensions are high. Neither of us likes each other very much, said Mr. Writing Desk. But there is one thing we both agree on, and that's to take a look around this grand new place we've shown up at. You're just going to use me to hurt them, CPE-13 whispered. The people here. Mr. Writing Desk glanced to Mr. Raven, who shot him a dedicated look of, What on God's green earth do you think you're doing? How about this, Mr. Writing Desk said. If they're not harming anyone... We'll leave them be. And in exchange, you stay put with us for tonight. No running. Sound fair? You mean it? Said CPE-13. I do, said Mr. Writing Desk. Isn't that right, Mr. Raven? <sighs> yes, Mr. Raven sighed. I don't understand why you insist on bargaining with her. But I accept. 
Right, said Mr. Writing Desk and stood up. Now, if I saw the signage correctly, there's a card game set to start an hour or two. I reckon we can relax a little before vacation is over. <sighs> Suppose a little time off might not hurt, Mr. Raven said, as Mr. Writing Desk came back over, and for a moment Mr. Raven was reminded of just how big the man was. Before work resumes. Yeah, said Mr. Writing Desk, and loosened his own tie, let it hang from either side of his shirt collar, with one button scandalously undone. Mr. Writing Desk then did something he rarely ever did. He smiled. Let's hope luck is on our side tonight. Decadences. There is such a thing, I think, as excess and it is apparent in the landscape of your kind. Some dreamers dwell in tents and decaying neighborhood houses, shelter in the forest and scavenge for food. Others fly from silver castle to silver castle on billion-dollar rotor wings, dream in magnificent slumber about mansions of thought. If you listen to this dream now, I regret to inform you that you are the former, and that true luxury will be forever out of your grasp. So if you scrounge upon a piece of chocolate, a cup full of coffee, food that is better than scraps, bread without moldering, feel no regret. This is a brief life for you, and you might as well make of it an experience worth remembering, if remember you will at all. Until all is dust and ash, I am your loyal host, Nickignick, waiting luxuriously for your return to the Hallowoods. Hello from the Hallowoods is written and produced by William A. Wellman. Hello, that's me. If you enjoyed this show, please don't forget to follow it and share it with a friend. The bonus story that goes with this episode is called The Oldies, and is available on the show's Patreon at patreon.com slash Because we are dedicated to operating without ads or sponsors, our supporters are all that keeps this show going week to week. Plus, supporters get weekly bonus stories, behind-the-scenes content, exclusive merch, and more, and they are even supporting tie-in projects like the 100 Eyes in the Dark spin-off novel. Merchandise and episode transcripts are available at hellofromthehallowoods.com. You can even find us on social media at at the Hallowoods if you're so inclined. Music is used under license from artlist.com. Our opening theme is Forest Overture by Eskel Raz, and the closing theme is Farewell by Mal Balsitzman and Matan Efrat. Until next time, dreamers, remember that self-care is important. Buy yourself a bath bomb. Self-care. Scrawl on the mirror in red paint. Self-care. Summon the ancient spirits to do your bidding. Self-care. Take a day off while the ancient spirits do your job for you. Self-care.